fighting the horrible madness of war. We need to stop bombing people's homes. It's not anti-European. Stop sending arms into conflict zones. It's common sense. Millions of Europeans struggle to feed their families and heat their homes. All wars are evil and all victims deserve support. And until we get on that page, we have no credibility whatsoever. When he is going to wake up and start living in the real world? Thank you. Hello and welcome. Welcome back to um, I Foresee T- Trouble with Wallace and Daly. And uh, Howard. And Howard. Um, welcome back. It's been a while. Um, I believe the first one since July. Um, and a lot going on. We've got our first uh, plenary back in Strasbourg. Um, lots of big files. And then, of course, the State of the Union. Absolutely. So We're still trying to get over that. The State of. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go into that first. Lots of things touched on there. Um with the von der Leyen saying that you know they they have this big geopolitical union and it's a call to history and they want the thirty plus uh, members in their defence union. Uh, what what do you think about that? Oh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you start? Yeah. Um, well, obviously, I mean, I look at. I mean, first of all, I mean, her speech was was a horror scene. And, um, you, you can't help feeling that she's actually talking to about 10% of the population and that she's not really communicating with 90% of them, mm. you know. I mean, even the MEPs struggle to kind of get up a whoop and a, a clap, you know. It's nearly like you have to put up a, a sign, clap now. It was very lukewarm. Well, in actual fact, she, she paused a number of times yeah. so that they would clap. <laughs> and had to wait a bit longer than usual. All she, all she was missing was an organised clapometer, Yeah, you know? yeah. Remember the time Zelensky came and he started telling people when to That's clap, right, yeah, showing them what he, to do. He used to clap for them and yeah. they get them all going. <laughs> for God's sake, what There's kind of... There's no whooping and cheering this to time. The planet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, look what I mean. This idea of the hell-bent on increasing the size of the EU now and it's all about um, undermining Russia more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't realise... I mean, the average guy in the street, uh, I'm not so sure he's going to be um, very impressed with the amount of money that we're going to pour into Ukraine in the next few years. And the idea of Ukraine getting into the European Union in the next five years is kind of just about impossible mm-hmm. under under normal uh, conditions. Um, the reconstruction of Ukraine will probably cost in the region of a trillion now, if the European taxpayers are going to have to pay for that, it ain't going to go down very well. And we're, I'm on the file now for the Ukraine facility, which uh, has just begun and uh, will conclude probably before Christmas. But we're starting off by giving them $50 billion for reconstruction. But in the meantime, we're still spending billions to stry, helping to destroy the place. We're putting billions in on one end to continue the war and keep it going and make sure it doesn't stop. And we're helping to destroy the place by continuing the war. So while we're actually spending billions helping to make things worse, we're actually, they want to start reconstruction now as well at the same time. I mean, think about it. I mean, are they going to fix things that will get destroyed again? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is madness like. Yeah, I mean, I think there was 
practically no detail or depth at all in her speech. I mean, most of it was vacuous nonsense, um, little sort of slogans and catchphrases like something out of a Hollywood B move me or, uh, as Luke said, like a Hallmark beckon card like it was just pathetic but I think in terms of yeah I mean she was trying to talk up this idea size and weight matters we need to finish our union and engage on another programme of successful enlargement and this is making sense just la la stuff I mean the idea the amount of money being poured into Ukraine to help destroy it and the idea that any amalgamation of hoovering up all of the European countries into our camp just so we can be a bloc against Russia doesn't make any sense either geopolitically or financially. I mean, she bragged about the fact that the European Union was paying, had paid 12 billion to in wages uh, to keep the economy in and basically public services going in Ukraine at the moment. But you can be quite sure that the average man and woman on the street in Ukraine isn't benefiting from that. And the types of contracts that are being pushed here are ones for wealthy big business, a lot of it outside the country, hoovering up the resources in there. We've seen the defence programmes that they're pushing now under the auspices of contributing to Ukraine. So this idea of the Ukraine um, Procurement Facility Fund or whatever it's called for uh, military aid, five billion a year that, that Burrell is talking about. Even if there is a ceasefire, we'll keep giving five billion a year just to deter yeah, Russia. They've actually committed to giving us five billion a year for the next four years, yeah. whether the war stops or not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is low Lula stuff. Well, it totally is when you consider all of that. There was nothing dealt with. And you were point make about the disconnect about the citizens of Europe and what they're facing at the moment in terms of the cost of living crisis, in terms of the lack of support for businesses. We were both uh, at the discussion last night on the relief package for small and medium sized businesses, mm-hmm. which everybody was bleating on about how important they are for our economies. And they are. But there's been record bankruptcies this year across the sector and the European Union talked about a relief plan last year now they're talking about it again and putting a little bit more flesh on it they haven't actually done anything and you compare that to the speed at which they could deliver a programme to get ammunition to Ukraine two months 500 million gone like that dealt with you know the same thing on the Ukraine facility it's going to be a couple of months they'll sign off on that no such support for small and medium sized businesses or to help people deal with the crushing inflation and profiteering that's going on and the real sad part about this is well there's a whole lot of people actually making money off this war obviously the arms industry are are creaming up but uh, anyone involved in fossil fuels is making a killing Mm -hmm. Right. You have people buying and selling food. I mean, uh, a, a ton of wheat coming out of Ukraine or out of anywhere these days is bought and sold about 60 times. Mm-hmm. The financial speculation uh, by these people is driving up the price of food. So what we have is we, we've, we've unprecedented inflation in Europe and we're making the European people pay the price of the European establishment looking to destroy Russia, to punish Russia, to undermine Russia, and all for what? And it's the European citizens that are actually footing the bill. Eurostat only published there a couple of weeks ago statistics on poverty in Europe today. 95 million people are at risk of poverty in the EU. 
Yeah. Now think about it. Mm-hmm. But less than 500, 500 million people uh, mm-hmm. in the EU, EU is around 460 or 470 or something. 95 million are at risk of poverty mm-hmm. because, and because, of this, because of this madness. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and not once. I, I don't think I heard von der Leyen mention the word poverty or inequality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if she did, I missed it. Nothing on the cost of living. No, no. <laughs> well, you know, remember she said at the start, she said, it's 300 days to the next election and people will go to the polls and they will be thinking about the war in Ukraine and all this. So they will like hell. They'll be yeah. thinking, how in God's name can I survive? I haven't got a decent uh, roof over my head. I'm crippled with rent and bills. I'm not making ends meet. That's what they're going to be thinking like, yeah. you know. Uh, she's sure. so like, and they wonder why there's such a disconnect between uh, you know the people of Europe and the institutions yeah. here it was ridiculous uh, well, just on that right here, here's a quote from her right our union today reflects the vision of those who dreamt of a better future after World War II a future in which a union of nations democracies and people would work together to share peace and prosperity share peace and prosperity yeah. we don't want peace in Ukraine and the prosperity is only for the few this 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 woman is living uh, in fantasy land. Mm-hmm. Well, she totally is, and I mean, even her points about Africa and all of that, and they're in a race with the Russians in terms of Africa. She's talking about how these uh, growing, developing, emerging economies, as she called them, how they're a little bit troubled about some of the international institutions at the moment. Meaning, in other words, that they have decided they've had enough of colonialism and empire, and they're not going to be browbeaten by the the Western powers anymore, which is great to see, and we very much much welcome it. But um, this idea which she keeps promoting of the rules-based international order is completely made up. And just on an aside on it, our office were very quick to, to point out that the Irish establishment has really moved in this circle as well, that in Irish diplomatic circles, they don't talk about UN multilateralism or international law anymore. There was a change around 2017 and up to in the, the 12 years up to 2017, rules-based international order was only mentioned by ministers in, in Dáil debates and that five times. Since then, in the last five years, it's been mentioned 96 times. So there's been a change in the Irish political speak as well to talk up this idea of rules-based international order, mm-hmm. which means the West dominating uh, the rest of the world. And this is what Ursula wants to promote, uh, along with her little grubby deals with some of the world's worst dictators as well, which she seemed to be talking up. Yeah, on the migration and the smuggling. Um, mm. Just on the rules-based international order that you're on about, right? Um, I read a powerful piece yesterday and they were looking at, at the um, the meeting in Anchorage between the Chinese and the Americans. Blinken and Jake Sullivan were there for the Americans and uh, Wang Yi and Yang Jichu were there for the Chinese, right? And the, the outcome of the meeting really, a synopsis of it was Washington's goal was to advance the interest. And this was Blinken. This is Blinken saying this, right? Washington's goal was to advance the interests of the US and to strengthen the rules-based international order that maintains global stability. 
And China's response was China upheld the UN-centred international system and the international order underpinned by international law, not what is advocated by a small number of countries. And the, the guy writing the article says, Washington's insistence on what it calls a rules-based international order in contrast to Beijing's advocacy of a broad UN-based order of sovereign states underpinned by international law, stands for the current US strategy of compelling China to comply with the hegemonic political-economic order imposed by an alliance of major powers under US leadership so as to lock in current imperial power relationships. Well, China ain't taking it anymore. Well, and neither are most of the countries in the world, which is the gas thing, because while she said yesterday about, oh, the Russian war, is a, a Russia is waging war against the UN Charter, and there's a lot of concern in countries around the world. But actually, countries around the world have seen the US violate the UN Charter, the UK, the EU, multiple times, which is why they haven't taken sides. On a daily sides. basis. Yeah, which is why they haven't taken sides in this war. Not that they are against the Ukrainian people or anything like that, but they've seen imperialism in action. And this is why the absolute neck of these people, and she went on serious China bashing in her speech uh, as well. It's the, um, economically stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, it's... Um, diminishing the interests of Europe and the people of Europe in subservience to US empire really again. She didn't say anything about all of the acts that the Americans brought in. Uh, She didn't say anything about the fact that the Americans are charging Europeans four times the price for uh, LNG than they're paying uh, in their own country. But she was quite happy to give out about Chinese distorting the market and all this. It's it's disgraceful. Just just touching on that, uh, you know, we had two debates uh, on critical raw materials uh, this week, and one of them was on uh, we're trying to the the EU is trying to do a deal with the Americans on access to critical raw materials that that the both are interested in. The Americans have nominated fifty different mid- minerals that they c- perceive to be critical. They're only prepared to share five of them with the Europeans out of the fifty. Now, and there was a guy from the EPP stood up yesterday to compla- actually highlighting that and saying, listen, this isn't really good enough. Mm. But they're a like-minded partner. Oh, they are. And their rivalry and their sort of castration of the European economy didn't get any mention. Neither did the fact that Germany is now in recession. The European economies are in absolute tatters. It was uh, mad stuff. But it was really damn squib. I mean, she tried to talk up the environmental uh, progress that the EU has made. She tried to, you know, say we're going to finish yeah. our job, but there was no detail to it and certainly no truth that the, by pushing the war, they've reneged on a lot of their environmental commitments and not to mention the fact that it's her political group that's driving an awful lot of the rowing back on the ambitious climate and, uh, and and green policies that the parliament was trying to bring forward, including, and this is mental, uh, a directive on air quality, which kills hundreds of thousands of people across Europe, mm-hmm. poor air quality with respiratory problems and so on. And we suffered there. And the EPP group voted against having the directive and the levels of pollutants being kept in line with uh, WHO regulations. Oh, but people should remember as well that when the, the battle was raging here before the summer break on nature restoration, von der Leyen yeah. was incredibly silent. Mm-hmm. This was the president of the commission who had been uh, 
trumping the, the Green Deal uh, for the last couple of years and then when it came around to nature restoration law and the EPP were against it and they were they were wanting to throw it in the bin, uh, von der Leyen went silent. Yeah, yeah. Had nothing to say about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we better stop talking about it. It wouldn't be well. And talking about other uh, legislation that, that occurred this week, so Mick, you were shadowing the regulation on establishing the European Defence Industry and Reinforcement through Common Procurement Act. Um, what, what do you think? How do you think that went this week? Yeah, look at um, what was the atmosphere like? In yeah, the, look, I mean, there's, I suppose, both myself and Claire spoke on it, right? And we're just we're just highlighting the fact that the European Union at the moment cannot throw enough money at the arms industry. Mm-hmm. Shares in the arms industry are going up and up. Profits are unprecedented. And it's a brilliant time for the arms industry. And the EU is throwing money after money after money at the industry. It is nonsense. I mean, people should join the dots on it. I mean, basically, this commission is saying that we have a serious problem in Europe Uh, There's a crisis and we need to wage war, not on housing, not to deal with climate change, but we need to wage war on procurement. We have a problem with procurement and there are four programmes. This is the second one um, to basically give taxpayers money to the arms industry. It's Mm -hmm. it's sort of like a laundering of money where if two or three countries come together uh, and buy or order some military hardware, the European taxpayer will refund them. That's basically it. It's a handover of money that could be used for dealing with housing, health or other issues. It's going straight into the pockets of the European arms industry. And Mm -hmm. what doesn't get talked about anywhere, and Stoltenberg, when he came in before the CEDA committee last week, and we both got a chance to grill him, was going on about the key thing is to get the contracts, sign the contracts. But there was no talk about the men who are going to use the hardware that comes out of those contracts. The growing numbers of deaths and casualties across Ukraine, the talk about hoovering up men, men with disabilities, with mental health illness, people hiding in their houses. We know of the students being stopped from going to study in other countries. There's talk and fear of of, uh, attempts being made to extradite people back in to be cannon fodder in the meat grinder. It's it's really horrible when you see it like that. Yeah, we, we, we probably should give, maybe next week we might concentrate a little bit more on Stoltenberg's uh, responses to our questions and all, right? And it should be highlighted as well. I'm not so sure if RTE News might have covered it. Um, but Stoltenberg literally admitted <laughs> that the Russians were provoked into the war. Mm. He said that, that Russia approached them just before the war started and said, listen, we want a commitment that Ukraine or that Ukraine will not go into NATO, that NATO will stop expanding eastwards. And Stoltenberg boasted, well, of course, we didn't agree. Mm. So in, in actual fact, he boasted that they provoked him into it. Mm. And yet we have politicians and media all across Europe. They can't mention the war without calling it the unprovoked war. And of course, the only reason they call it unprovoked is because they know bloody well it was provoked. Mm. Mm. And and what was um, Stoltenberg's response to you when uh, you asked him about the villainous and, and the, the membership with Ukraine? And 
Nothing really. I mean, he was directly at all. No, not on that. We were just kind of highlighting the sort of irony that he was talking up the talk about, oh, great, we're getting Sweden and Finland. But actually, Zelensky and Ukraine were very disappointed at the outcome because there isn't a path for them into NATO, really. They're being used. Ukraine is just a proper stage. And I thought it was kind of ironic that the chair of CEDA had made the point that the the aid given to Ukraine somewhat compensated for their disappointment. In other words, they were bought off, like, you know. I think you Ukrainian people are getting sick of this now. Well, sir, Zelensky came out first and went mad. And then, but they literally called him into a room and they put manners on him. And then he came out with a different tune. But uh, Natalie Loiseau, the chair of CEDA and Claire, both challenged them on the fact that uh, the Ukrainians were very disappointed and that they got a timeline on uh, their entry into NATO. And Stoltenberg uh, didn't really go there. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't. It was like as if he was pretending it didn't happen. Yeah, and I think Zelensky's getting very, he's playing that card a lot as well. Give me money or else. Give me money or I'm not having the elections. Mm-hmm. And there was a shocking uh, interview in The Economist that people should read with him where he basically said, listen, we're glad that the people of Europe have taken in uh, refugees, four million refugees. That's great. Uh, but they have been very well behaved so far. Uh, but if you abandon us in this war and don't keep sending us armaments and keep sending the money, they might be very disappointed about that and they mightn't be so well behaved in your countries. I mean, this is like what Erdogan and other people do. They give out about Lukashenko using refugees as sort of collateral and all that. Deal with me or I'll open the floodgates. Your man is basically saying, give me the money, keep this war going or else I'm going to what? Send the Azov battalion around to a town near you in rural County Clare or something like this is dreadful stuff. It really is. And uh, the, and in the middle of it all, we're forgetting that it's human beings, as Ursula von der Leyen did when she bragged about her deal with Tunisia, which in fairness to the parliament, I mean, there were two weird things, which on one level shows you how frighteningly horrible things are going on around the world, when almost across the political spectrum, the European Commission's deal with Tunisia was condemned. And almost across the board, the Guatemalan um, establishment's attempt to subvert the democratic will of the Guatemalan people was practically roundly condemned by everybody as well, which on the one hand is good, but on the other hand shows you how awful what's going on really is. And you were very strong on the Tunisia thing, Mick. Yeah, um, we, we discussed that at Foreign Affairs last week as well. And von der Leyen was talking about uh, yesterday as if this was a great thing. Mm. We're literally given about a billion to the Tunisians to manage migrants for us, to sort of stop them from coming to Europe. The Europeans have been trying to move the border of Europe from, from the, uh, north of the Mediterranean to down in sub-Saharan Africa. And they're spending a fortune trying to do it, controlling these, trying to control the flow of migrants. Instead of actually dealing with the problem and actually look at the root causes, well, why are the migrants moving? And part of the reason is that neo-colonialism uh, is flourishing still and we are robbing the place blind. European companies are down there exploiting the place. The Europeans go down there, they're bringing, uh, we're, we're paying for military activity, we're putting arms into the place, but we're not building schools, we're not creating jobs, we're not building hospitals for them, we're not building infrastructure, right? And we're wondering why there's a problem. 
as we're robbing the place, keeping them poor. It's just shocking, given that we've all seen what's happened with the you know with the EU paying the Libyan Coast Guard to do the same thing in Libya, yeah. and detention camps, and the torture of um, thousands of migrants who are just totally stuck. And it's not a solution at all. It's really just the Commission allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's shocking that. And, and President Said Said of of Tunisia, right? He is incredibly racist in a lot of his commentary. Mm-hmm. And he has been horrific with migrants coming into Tunisia and some of his own people inside the country. And recently, the Libyans found 27 bodies just inside their border. The Tunisians had forced them out. There were the people, and there was children among them, 27 people that were forced to walk in the desert with no shelter, no water, no food for days and they all died of starvation and dehydration. Mm. And we're giving money to this fella to police uh, the coast so to stop migrants getting mm. to Europe. I think it was pretty embarrassing for her as well in that when she was praising the deal, uh, later that even, uh, you know, evening, they, uh, the announcement came out that MEPs who were supposed to travel to, to uh, Tunisia weren't were allowed, were, were blocked, blocked yeah. uh, and weren't allowed. So your man just took yeah. the money and kind of gave her back the two fingers. But look, at, it's true to form. We've done the exact same in Turkey. And as you pointed out, Mick, in the debate, I mean, what, are you, what is your plan for the millions of Syrians who are caged in Turkey that the EU are paying to keep there. You won't allow them back to Syria because you're mm-hmm. sanctioning the country. The country couldn't, can't even feed its own people because we're killing them with sanctions. So you won't lift the sanctions and you won't let them come to Europe. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's barbarous. Well, yeah, I mean, I asked them last night, that are given over 10 billion to Turkey to cage them. Over 2 million refugees, migrants, right? And they, they don't want them to come to Europe. They don't want them to go back to Syria. They want to keep them in cages in Turkey and we're paying European taxpayers' money, billions, mm. to keep them there. And I said, what's the plan? Where does this end? What's, what's the future for these migrants? No. What's going on? But, but they won't answer the question. I'm right, they won't. Absolutely. You, you can cover, cover those other couple of topics because I have to run and speak okay. in the chamber, right? But are you, are you going to cover the sex I'll workers? I'll do the sex workers, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. Right, and then... Another uh, file, a very um, polemic file, it's a FEM file, FEM committee on prostitution. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a debate that we had in Ireland when we were in the Dáil. And this is the much talked about Swedish model for dealing with, or Nordic model for dealing with sex um, work. Uh, criminalising the purchase of sex. So we had this file about supposedly being uh, the solution to prostitution, uh, the solution to, you know, women being exploited by the sex industry. But it isn't. It was Mm -hmm. just a rehash of this so-called Nordic model, which was all the rage about 10 years ago when we were in the Irish Parliament. This was going to end prostitution. But of course it didn't. It was a model brought in in Sweden and then actually was brought in in Ireland when we were there and in France. But nowhere else. Actually, Mm. most European countries are going in the opposite direction. Like yeah. um, Belgium has decriminalised sex work. Yeah, has the given, only country in the EU, yeah. Which is really good. And we yeah. had, we're at an event in the parliament where the minister came in and it was very much focused on the women at the centre of this, providing support, um, providing resources, health checks, you know, all the rest of it. And the problem is, I, I found it really weird because all of these organisations that normally the sort of 
people in the parliament love quoting, but like Amnesty International, ENAR, AIDS Action, you know, all of these, the the Lancet, uh, the World Health Organization, the UN Special Rapporteur on Health, all of these people say criminalisation harms women. And in the countries where they've brought it in, and this is the ironic thing, in Ireland we've had some research since, and unfortunately... As we expected, it hasn't eliminated um, the, its prostitution at all. It's just made it more dangerous for women because yeah. it kind of deals with calls things. It, it prevents women from working together for their own safety and so on. And the report yeah. that was produced had a lot of factual inaccuracies in it as well, which yeah. wasn't really helpful. Like it talked about things like saying that Ireland and that there's no longer a market for sexual exploitation or trafficking. That's not just not true. Mm -hmm. It's a nonsense. And as we pointed out in Ireland, human trafficking and forced labour of women into sexual industry is already banned and should Mm -hmm. be. It's absolutely abhorrent. Young people, young women and young men engaged in this, that's already illegal. Like Mm -hmm. that's already defined as rape and outlawed. That's what we should be concentrating on. But for the, the, and they may be a minority, but for those sex workers who um, engage in sex work, they do need to be protected and criminalisation yep. doesn't do that. It just drives it underground. So, um, oh, and that There really is a little space for dissent in these discussions. So politically, um, some within the left party are totally pro-Nordic model. And there's been lots of discussions on this without, um, and it's, it's been very difficult for pro-sex workers to be able to have their voice in there. It's, it's very uh, polemic. Um, but within the whole of the parliament, it's the Greens and Renew that have filed a minority uh, position. Mm. So, totally against this. Um, and um, Well, it's yeah. funny, like, I mean, people in Ireland now and actually internationally, are kind of aware that a lot of issues when they get discussed are discussed in a very frenzied, toxic, um, divisive climate where only one narrative can exist. And if you challenge that prevailing or dominant view, well, then you're the enemy. Mm. And this was the first issue, actually, that that type of approach, which we've seen in terms of the war in Ukraine, we've seen it about COVID, uh, the whole trans issue and debate is really toxic as well. But the first one was really around sex work, that anybody who opposed the Nordic model was somehow put forward as somebody who wanted to endanger and expose women to violence or was sort of nearly in favour of of trafficking and all this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff, stuff that's already outlawed. It's a false debate. And we had that again last night in the debate, people saying prostitution is not freedom. It's not asserting people's uh, rights. It's not work, you know, this kind of thing. But nobody was saying it was freedom or it was a great thing like, but they were recognising it was a reality. And for some women, it is a rational choice for them to decide to do instead of maybe some really low paid, precarious work yeah. that's really badly paid, that yeah. some of them can decide to do it. Does that mean they like it? But other people don't like their work either. You yeah. know? It's no, not a they... reason for ignoring their voices and all of these people yeah. who talk about bodily autonomy. Ignored. demonised, yeah. Unbelievable. It's like we had the debate the other night as well, people getting up and saying um, 
the the hijab and that people should I you know people shouldn't be allowed to wear it you know they should mm. be allowed to wear what they want but denying the fact that some people do want to wear it you know? mm. it's just yeah. if it's, we you know if you don't bizarre. agree if you don't agree with me your voice doesn't count it's terrible yeah. stuff no and you know with any, with any kind of policy position you have to listen to the people who are actually involved and who are going to be in, impacted by this this is one of this these weird debates where the people who are very much are very you know passionate about their position just that totally falls on their fears and they put forward that you know they're kind of disgusted by the other position and it's uh, well it's moralistic it's yeah. uh, you know it's patronising really in some ways and while I'm very sure as we said in the debate that people have very good intentions in this people involved in sex work don't need good intentions they mm. need their rights protected and the evidence shows that criminalising the purchase of sex just drives it underground. It makes it more dangerous. The idea that it eliminates the demand because people might say, oh, I'm not going to go and uh, engage the services of a sex worker because I might get arrested. That doesn't happen. It just mm. makes the, the circumstances in which they work more unsafe. So, yeah, it was uh, an interesting one to see it. But it, again, it shows where a lot of countries are going in a different direction now. Mm. It's actually the Swedish model is, is old fashioned and outdated and yeah. the research doesn't back it. It's a bit weird that this was being pushed in the way in which yeah. it was. Yeah, well, we'll see this afternoon now how everyone votes on it. Um, it's going to be voted in the next couple of hours. And mm. yeah, we'll see you then. Yeah, right, we'll wrap it up there. Yep, so back to the to the cold face. We'll be back at committees next week and we have a number of really interesting uh, events coming up in the Parliament, which we'll talk about then as well, um, which we think are going to be pretty exciting around the closing of Guantanamo, around the issue of Georgian workers and actually on the 50th anniversary of the uh, coup against Salvador Allende in Chile and looking at Chile today. So I think that can be good. We've also been involved in a lot of stuff. I'm going to the Stop the War Coalition um, conference in London at the weekend, which is great. And there was an excellent left block um, event last week in, in Inishir where we got the chance to talk about militarism and war and all of the other issues as well. So it's great to see events happening. There was the Manifiesta that you were at, Bethany, in, uh, in Great Belgium. fun. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Organised people there, 2,500 and volunteers all propping it up. Yeah. Great it, event. It's amazing. These big left-wing festivals. There was one in Lisbon. There's one uh, uh, in in France this weekend. There'll be probably about half a million people at these big left-wing workers uh, and yeah. trade union conferences, which is really quite inspiring. And Very I think uplifting, yeah. The one in, in Inishir can become a model, I think, for Ireland to, to replicate that. There's oh. definitely a market for it. So we look forward to working with Trademark and Left Block on that. Yeah. So until next week. Until next week. Andiamo. A dopo. Bye.